I'm Carly Fiorina, and this is By Example. On this podcast, we sit down with leaders of all types to explore examples of real leadership and the qualities of all great problem solvers. I think we get really confused about what leadership is. On By Example, we lift up the real leaders, people who are focused on changing the order of things for the better and solving real problems that are right in front of them. Leading by example. Wilt Chamberlain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Ray Allen, Carl Malone. These are some of the NBA's all-time stats leaders, household names, and deservedly so, because of their exceptional standout talent on the court. Today, we're talking to an NBA veteran who, while plenty famous, won't show up on any of those statistical leaderboards, but is still considered an NBA great. We're talking with Shane Battier. Shane was, by one sports writer, called the No Stats All-Star. Not only because of his abilities in his small forward position, but because every time he went on the floor, whether in his time at Duke or Memphis or Houston or Miami, he made his teammates better. In fact, as you'll hear, that was his goal. You see, leadership doesn't have to be about your own stats, your own glory, or getting your own credit. Rather, it's about working together with others to achieve a common goal. Shane embodied that on the floor, and still does today off the court. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So, hello, Shane. Welcome to By Example I'm so glad you could be with us today. Carly, it's a huge honor. Thank you for having me on. Well, I'm honored. And um, you may not know this. I have to admit, I have to confess that I'm not a real basketball aficionado. I follow it a little bit, but I am not the expert that members of my team are. Uh, But... You play a role in my most recent book, Find Your Way, and that is a tribute to how fascinating I think you are and the example that you give us. So I need to just tell you that right up front. You know what? That's okay. I don't know much about basketball either. (laughs) Well, that's clearly not true. (laughs) Well, um, for our listeners, I want to tell them a little bit about why you're in my book, Find Your Way, what I found so exemplary and interesting about you. And then I want to ask you how you got to be who you are. Um, I use you as an example of someone who dedicates themselves to a larger cause, a bigger purpose, who has the humility to not worry about being the big star or the big ego, but somehow just makes everybody better. Um, And you, by the stats, uh, make every team you've ever played with better. Uh, In fact, you were called the No Stats All-Star. Talk a little bit about how you came to be that kind of player, that kind of person, and what that title, the No Stats All-Star, means to you. 
Well, first of all, thank you, Carly, for that very nice compliment. Uh, I, I tell people I was I was blessed with a lack of talent. Uh, and you're probably saying, what does that mean? I learned everything I needed to learn about, about being a great teammate, uh, by leading, uh, when I was in kindergarten, uh, when I was in first grade, I grew up in a small town outside Detroit, Michigan, Birmingham, Michigan. And, uh, I was lucky, uh, to grow up M and M P and T mixed, poor and tall. And I was very different. I was very different from all the kids in my class. I looked different. I, I had a different background. Uh, my dad is, is black. My mom is white. I was the only minority in my elementary school kid uh, classroom. Um, on picture day, when everyone else got a comb, I got a pick. And on Martin Luther King Day, I was expected to know everything about black culture from the dawn of, the dawn of history. Uh, I grew up on the, uh, the poor side of town. I was actually ashamed to have people over to my house because every time it rained, uh, I was in charge of putting the, the buckets underneath the, uh, the leaks in the roof. And I was tall. I was a foot taller than everyone in my class. And uh, my mom used to say when I was three years old, I'd follow her around the store and, and, and say, mama, mama, mama. And people would say, Sandy Battier, you're, you're so patient with your special needs child. And my mom would say, you idiot. He's only three years old, but I look like I was six or seven years old. Uh, and so I was always different. I was always different. And when you're a kid, all you want to do is fit in. And the one place I always found I fit in was at recess, on the basketball court, on the sandlot, on the football field, on the wiffle ball court. And I realized at an early age that when, when my team won and my friends won and I helped them to win, people loved me. People wanted me around. So for me, sports was a sanctuary. And, and literally, it was a matter of social survival for me. It was either win or, or die. And that was the mindset that carried me from the first day of, of, of kindergarten to the last day I played in the NBA. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about what I did. It was about what we did. And as long as the team had success, I would have value and, and have love. That's such an interesting uh, story. You know, it, it reminds me... Um, when I started in business, I started out as a secretary, and I uh, eventually landed in AT&T, a big telecommunications company, and I didn't know anything. And so because I didn't know anything, I was forced to be really humble, and I asked a lot of questions. And I came to learn over time that asking a lot of questions and solving the problems that nobody else wanted to touch um, earned me credibility. And over time, it earned me promotion. Um, but I always say to people, I was so lucky that I didn't know anything because I was forced to learn how to learn questions and to help other people. Um, Shane, at what point, if you can remember, at what point did that attitude that you had, you know, win with your team, help your team win or die. Was there a point where that win or die mentality turned into something more joyful for you? That's a great question. I don't know if I ever looked at it in terms of, of, of joy or misery. Um, I love to compete. I love being part of a team. Um, you know, I was lucky to be 
to, to play for the, the greatest coach of all time, um, in Ed Battier, my dad, big Ed Battier. And the things he talked about as my little league coach, as my football coach, never my basketball coach, messages of hustle, cheering your teammates on, supporting them when they failed, being a good sport, uh, tucking in your shirt, looking like you're, you're a ball player. Uh, those are the things that were, they were just normal to me. And, um, when other people didn't act that way, I was like, well, what's wrong with you? Like this, this is how we, this is how we play. And so being a great teammate and enjoying your teammates success, it was, it was completely normal. And, you know, probably the best part of, of little league. And I didn't, I didn't know any better. So you played literally every sport when you were growing up. It sounds like ba baseball, basketball, football, everything, everything. And at what point did you decide you were going to specialize in basketball? <laughs> if I can use that term. Uh, if a funny thing happened on the way to the uh, the forum, uh, I, I grew four inches in one summer. And so, oh when my I was, gosh! <laughs> yeah, when I was uh, when I was twelve years old, I was six feet tall, and uh, I actually thought I was going to be a major league baseball pitcher. I was, I was a pretty good baseball player. And uh, the magical summer of uh, 1990, I, I grew to, to be 6'4", and I was a pretty good basketball player. I said, well, maybe this basketball thing uh, is, is, is my ticket. Uh, but I, I, let me tell you, for all the parents listening out there, uh, I played baseball through high school. Even though I was a nationally ranked high school basketball player, I still played baseball. I loved it. And so I, I never really specialized until I got to college. And uh, there's so much pressure now for kids today to, to specialize early and focus on one sport. I would, I would, my advice to parents out there is do the opposite. Be well-rounded. It can only help you uh, in the end of your, of your sport of, of, of choosing. Yeah, I, that's such an important lesson. One of the things I talk about in my book, Find Your Way, is the importance of staying on a path, but not getting hung up on a plan. And so many, I see this happen in the business world as well, or kids come out of college and they feel like, I, I have to know exactly where I'm going, exactly what I'm doing. I need to know how much money I'm supposed to make and what job, and I need the perfect job and all this stress. And I see so many people shortcut themselves because they get so hung up on the specialization, on the destination, that they miss the opportunities that are right in front of them, or they miss finding out who they really are and what they're really good at. And so uh, in, in my own way, I give people the same kind of advice, which is try lots of things and take the time to figure out who you are, take the time to explore many different opportunities uh, before you settle in. But I agree, it's a very counter-cultural message right now. Actually, I think your whole message about teamwork and um, it's not about me, it's about whether the team wins. I think, honestly, in some ways, that's a very countercultural message. We tend to, you know, lift up the winner and downplay the loser. We, can, we tend to um, focus on the singular hero, although you and I know there is no such thing as a singular hero. Everybody has help. <laughs> but we, we, we tend to lift up the solitary figure as opposed to, uh, the team or the teammate. Yeah. And it's, it, it's, it is a sign of the times. And, uh, just, I have a 10 year old and an eight year old and, uh, just, I, I try to hammer that message home to them. And in this Instagram world of, of the perfect narrative. And I think so many yeah. people 
perfect photo. (laughs) Perfect photo. I'm I'm living my best life. Look at me. Um, You know, I I think that maybe the greatest attribute of, of successful people is they make it look easy. And they make it look like they were ordained from above to have the success. And, you know, the great fallacy is for every successful person, I don't care what industry, it is a slog. It's a grind. It's losing. It's learning. It's adapting. It's, it's constantly evolving uh, to, the, to, the, to the form of, of where they are today at the top of the mountain and making it look easy. And I've played with Hall of Fame coaches and Hall of Fame players, and uh, I've seen firsthand what makes those people special. And it's the willingness to learn, it's the willingness to work, it's the willingness to be vulnerable, the willingness to accept change. And that's, that's, that's the secret of success. And uh, I would love to hear that message uh, trumpeted more than uh, living the, the perfect life in, in one Instagram post. Well, huh, amen to all of that. And of course, the selfie, I mean, one of the pieces of advice I give in this book is put down the phone. <laughs> the, the selfie culture is, you know, you just see people surrounded by so much to look at and learn from, and yet they're obsessed on taking the selfie. So, uh, you know, what you just said, Shane, I talk about the essence of leadership, and it's always the same. Leadership takes courage. It takes character, which is what keeps you going when the going gets tough and the going always gets tough. It's integrity over time and consistency over time and honor over time. It's humility, which you've talked a lot about, so important to being part of the team, but also empathy. I mean, one of the things I think you exemplified on the court was empathy. You're quoted as saying, you know, I did the things other people didn't want to do, which meant you were tuned to other people and what they did well and what they didn't do well. And humility and empathy are fundamental to collaboration. And then, of course, seeing possibilities, even when circumstances are difficult. That, to me, is the essence of leadership. And without those things people don't succeed, whatever that means to folks. Um, Someone once asked me, what is success? And I said, well, some people would describe it as wealth or fame, but I would describe it as positive contribution and love and moments of grace. Uh, And those things are part of a successful life. I want to go back to something you said for all the parents out there. You said, um, don't have your kids specialize too soon. Talk to me a little bit about your parents, the example of your parents. I know that my parents were so foundational and fundamental to who I am and how I grew. I feel so blessed to have had them. And it sounds to me as though you feel that way about your mom and dad as well. And sometimes I think parents need lifted up and reminded how much difference they can make. So maybe you'd talk about Big Ed, Battier, and your mom as well. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm biased, but I, I'm, I'm so lucky to have the, the two greatest parents in the world. And uh, they're, they're, they're still living and they're still, still married. Um, my dad has actually had a series of strokes, so he's in a nursing home now, but, uh, sorry. no, it's, he is, uh, you know, he's still got unbelievable spirit and, uh, I like to think I'm a great combination of, of both my parents and we didn't grow up with much. 
and my brothers and sisters, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't grow up with much, but we always had enough. We, we had love. And uh, my parents always preached the importance of, of learning. And so we always had books, even though we didn't have much else. We always had books and we all had, we always had each other. And, uh, you know, just growing up, I was, I was lucky to live in a, in a house where my dad, uh, taught me a, a real blue collar ethic. You know, being from Detroit, we pride ourselves on the assembly line mentality of waking up and you punch the clock and you work your tail off at, at work. But at five o'clock, you punch out, you go have a beer with your family or your friends and uh, spend time with your family. And then you do it all again, all, all again tomorrow. And I learned my incredible work ethic from my dad, who was in a job. He was in the transportation industry of, of warehousing steel. It wasn't glamorous at all. You know, I, I know my dad probably wished he, he had a different job, but he did it because he wanted to give us opportunities. He did it because he could he could coach us after, after work, after, for every game. And so I learned an amazing amount of perspective and sacrifice and, and love and ethic for my father. My, my mother is the toughest uh, person that I know to this day, and she does not back down from anybody. I actually, uh, a funny story about her, uh, I was playing in a, in a summer league pickup game when I was in high school. And my mom came to, to watch me. I was playing against this really tough uh, NBA player at the time, and he blocked my shot and just started talking trash to me. And my mom was in the front row. And my mom stood up and says, don't talk to him like that. And the, the guy turned around and said, who said that? And my mom stood up and said, I said it. You got a problem with it? And I'm thinking, oh, my Lord, mom, you know, I'm in high school. Don't embarrass me, please. I can handle myself. And they went toe to toe. And my mom did not back down from this guy who was six foot ten, and because uh, she was protecting her baby. And uh, you know, ever you know, ever since then, I never questioned uh, what my mom would do <laughs> to protect me and show me love. And uh, you know, she's an amazing example for me for for strength and and loyalty and and love. And so. Uh, there's no question I wouldn't be here without without all those examples and and uh, and just inspiration growing up. And I, I know I, I try to be that same way to my to my parent to my kids. Um, you know, it's, it's a tall order. Wow, those are such great stories. And maybe also your mother was trying to teach you a lesson through him to say, I don't care how big and famous you are, you don't talk like that, you don't act like that. You know exactly. Um, Shane, you are known, obviously, and we've been talking about it, as someone who makes everyone better, someone who takes great pride in making others better and being uh, bringing all of yourself to the endeavor, to the work. You're also known as someone of great integrity and character. I think, I think integrity, honor, uh, are sometimes countercultural as well. Uh, we don't always lift up character. We sometimes, especially in social media, we we lift up, you know, conflict and controversy and outrageous people, not necessarily people of character. What, why, how important is integrity and how important has it been to you to not only have integrity, but to demonstrate it to others? Well, I would not be here without the help of so many people growing up and uh, it, my family fell in tough times at, at some point, but people always treated us well. And growing up in my household, the Battier household, it was just an unspoken 
lesson or truth. You, you just treat people well. And it doesn't matter where you're from or who you are. You treat people with respect and you give them your time. You give them your, your energy. And, um, you know, you know, Carl, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's just the right thing to do. And yeah. uh, when, when you're given choices, just I was blessed with a great, a great deal of common sense. Just do, just do the right thing. And um, I don't know if, again, if that was a conscious thing, but uh, I don't know if it was, it was part of just trying to fit in and, and trying to make people better. Uh, but that's just what made sense to me. Well, you know, it's so interesting because, as you say, it was just the right thing to do. I mean, it sounds so basic and so simple. And I'm sure part of you, as I ask that question, you're thinking, well, what a strange question. But I ask it because... For some people, um, there are so many tugs and pulls in an opposite direction. One of the things that I have said in business uh, for many, many, many years is the more successful you become, the higher you go, the more opportunities are presented to you to sell your soul, to take shortcuts, to behave less than honorably or less than honestly. It's one of these interesting things about life that you're just, you're given, the higher you go, the more opportunities there are to sell your soul. I think that's true. And so uh, it's so obvious to you that honor and integrity and mutual respect and self-respect are the right things. But I think it's not always obvious. And again, it's not always the message that people get, unfortunately. I agree. And, you know, I think I was lucky that I never took myself too seriously in my career. Um, I think my parents taught me great perspective that, look, you're playing a game and you're getting paid for it and things are good and, and it could be a lot worse. And so uh, I, I valued my career and I really worked hard, but I never thought the basketball was who I was. It was what I did. And in my, in my relationship as a son and as a husband and as a father and as a friend, that's, that's much more important than throwing a ball through the hoop. And I, I understand that basketball allowed me to do amazing, amazing things, see the world and meet uh, people from every corner of the world. Uh, but basketball was what I did. And it, it was not who I became. Mm. So important. So important. Um, one of the things that I – am fond of saying is that the highest calling of a leader is to unlock potential in others. And that is something you obviously believe, although you might say it slightly differently. Um, talk to us a little bit about your Take Charge Foundation and why that's important to you and the potential that you hope you're unlocking in others through that foundation. I'm so blessed to, to be where I am today. And um, I, I at the core of who I am, and this is what I tell my kids every day is, is it's important to do good, do well. And it's, it's important to, to dream and not be afraid to, to, to maximize your potential, um, understand and respect the work that goes along with that and, and just get to the highest level, whatever that level is. And whether you're walking your dog or making your bed or trying to eat all the A's in school or try to make the basketball team, do your best. Uh, but at the same time, if you have success, it's hollow if you don't share it with others and you don't use what you have uh, achieved or what you gained by your success with others who need help. And, and so I said when I was growing up, 
But look, I, I wouldn't have gone to, to Duke University if I didn't have basketball. There's no way. My parents couldn't, just couldn't afford it. And I probably would have gone to community college or somewhere close to home. And uh, my opportunities would have been uh, so limited uh, compared to what I was afforded at, at, at Duke. And I said, look, if I ever make it, it's important that I create opportunities for others, especially through education. And so started the, the Take Charge Foundation 10 years ago. My wife, Heidi, who's a former school teacher in, in Memphis, who we, we met in uh, seventh grade. And uh, we're, we're extremely passionate about affording underserved kids who have the drive and the passion and, and the smarts, uh, just like I did, uh, but not the opportunity uh, to, to go to college. And so uh, in another month, we're going to graduate 23 kids from Miami Central High School, uh, and they're going to receive a Florida prepay scholarship, which will uh, alleviate their their worries of tuition. And, wow, uh, that's fantastic. Graduated uh, over 16 kids in our other Take Charge Scholar uh, program, and uh, we're just we're just proud that we're able to use our platform and our in our name uh, to raise awareness, raise money, uh, to to send special kids, and really change a generational dynamic in their communities. And that's it's you know we're not looking for a pat in the back. It's our responsibility, and it's it's one we take very seriously. When you select these kids, Shane, and I'm sure they realize when they're selected that this is a life-changing, a life-altering gift that you're, make, that you're giving them. Um, what do you say to them? I'm sure that you have an ongoing relationship with them at some level, but how do you present this gift that you're giving to them? Well, the, the kids in these communities, they may not know how much their, their life is about to be impacted or their families. Uh, in, in these communities that we serve, uh, there's an idea of what college is and, and what opportunity really is, uh, but it's our job to illuminate that. And uh, we tell them, look, you've been selected uh, because of the spark inside of you. And there's an energy about you and uh, a spirit about you that tells me that you want to do something big and you want to uh, make the change in your communities and, and in others. Um, but this is a covenant. If you promise to give your, your spirit, your energy, your, your dedication, your discipline uh, to graduating from high school, doing the best you can on your standardized tests, to stay out of trouble, uh, we will help you get there. Um, and so, you know, the beauty of our kids is they, they may not know fully the opportunity at hand, but they know there's something and they have faith that if, if they do their part, we'll do our part and we'll, we'll create a, a bomb that is, uh, is truly spectacular. You know, one of the things, um, that I've noticed over years and years is when people do something different are given a different opportunity, try to change the order of things for the better, solve a problem, challenge the status quo, they get criticized. And so I frequently say criticism is the price of leadership. Um, in the work that we do through my foundation and communities, I I'm often struck by the fact that people who step out, such as the kids that you're um, selecting through your Take Charge Foundation, people who step out to actually make something better frequently, at least initially, uh, aren't greeted with accolades. They're greeted with criticism. Um, 
do your kids go through that where people say, you know, what makes you so special and why do you think you're somebody special? And do, do you talk to them about that? Is there something you say to them to prepare them for the fact that some people aren't going to like them quite as much anymore? And that, that's, that's a, uh, that's a real dynamic, uh, especially with high school age kids, uh, when they get to do really interesting thing. Uh, my wife took three girls from Miami Central who'd never been out of the state of Florida to, to visit Columbia last year. And you can only imagine the, the culture shock coming out of one of the tougher parts of Miami to, to, to see Columbia in one of the greatest cities in the world. And uh, there, there is a psychological component uh, when, when our kids who don't know anyone who uh, is from their background, when they go to their freshman year in college, uh, some struggle. Some struggle, uh, but that's why we try to create community, and we let them know that we are here to support you. Um, if you, you know, look, there, there's very few people who have done great things in this world who have started out uh, with, with plaudits and and with with the accolades. And uh, you are doing something truly special. But you wouldn't be in this program if we didn't believe that you you had it in you. Uh, to, to fight through the social pressure, to fight through all the pressures, to uh, create community and, 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 and still achieve your dreams. And, and so we, we try to make it a positive that, you, you know, you're empowered. You're empowered to make a change or you wouldn't be here. So let me shift gears on you, if I may. Um, you also are someone who believes a lot in data fact, analytics, metrics, and you've used those things a lot. And again, it's sort of a, to you and I, it's obvious, but one of the things I notice sometimes is when we get into, say, uh, political arguments or even business disagreements, people can't get on the same page about what are the facts, what's the data, <laughs> what, my words, what actually is our current state? And how do we need to understand that in order to make that state better? Talk a little bit about how you got into that side of uh, the work that you do. Uh, well, it's pretty interesting. I, I was lucky to be traded uh, to the Houston Rockets back in 2006. And at the time, they were the first team in professional basketball uh, to have a data-centric philosophy um, in, in terms of team building. And it was it was really radical at the time. Baseball was a little bit ahead of basketball in the, from that standpoint, uh, but no one was really using big data uh, to to make organizational decisions. And I was traded to the Houston Rockets in 2006 because, um, in in some of the different models uh, that Daryl Morey, sort of the godfather of, of NBA analytics, uh, developed, um, uh, showed that I was an unbelievable value. For what I produce on the basketball court, uh, which I which I, which I love to hear uh, at the time, but uh, his, even I know that now. Yeah. See, I've looked enough of those stats; they all get better <laughs> when you're on the court. And so, you know, I, I really learned, uh, you know, from the Godfather the value of data on the basketball court, and it really changed my view of the way I played the game and, and how I approached the game. And I, I started to look at. at the game of basketball is a series of, of trade-offs and it really was a, a decision tree. And I understood that, look, the data is not going to tell me uh, the answers to the question, but it can eliminate a few of the multiple choice questions I know are wrong. 
and and basically I looked at, at data as a risk mitigation tool, and it would it would just it would give me a little more margin of of uh, shrink my margin of error and hopefully increase it for my opponents. And uh, again, it, it was one of those things that just that just made sense to me. I was a religion major; I wasn't, uh, uh, you know, a, a quant in college, uh, but it just made sense uh, to play basketball and play the percentages because over the long run, uh, I would have success. And so that's how I started, and uh, I was really the first player to be able to, to integrate um, hard data in in the heat of battle, and uh, it allowed me to stay in the game for for a long time despite being slow and unathletic. Well, and you're a, you know, you advise a lot of really uh, interesting uh, companies. And um, I've done work with Intel for many, many years. I'm an MIT grad. So I I appreciate the fact that uh, you speak at MIT and you work uh, with Intel. It's just a side of you that I think not everyone would um, just naturally know. But I I think it's uh, really interesting to think through there you have all of this emotional intelligence around teamwork and uh, making others better and integrity and giving back and then this very uh, heavy analytic sort of orientation and in my experience um, people who understand the value of both of those things uh, tend to be more valuable to others yeah and, and and you know, Carly, it's as much as it's the data, it's still people. Yes, it is still and, and people. It's still people. And, uh, you know, I probably spend more time on behavioral psychology than I do data at this point. Yep, <laughs> yep. It's still understanding people. It's still understanding how to get the best out of your people. And, and the data is a tool. It's a yes. tool. It's not, it's not the answer. Uh, but at the same token, the other side of the token, uh, just knowing people is a tool and not the answer. And, and the people that are going to win the battle in the next coming decades are the people that can marry the data with the people skills and and do it seamlessly in, in a way that just that just makes sense. And uh, um, that's what we're all trying to find. And that, that's that's the, the the challenge in the near term for all of us. Yes, it's it's so well said. I I like to say in in uh, settings. Look, facts are always our friends. Let's get clear on the facts. <laughs> Data helps us. We need to understand uh, what is uh, and how to make that better in quantified terms. On the other hand, I was uh, teaching a class at a university recently, and to a bunch of. Um, brand new business students. And I said, you know, you may be interested in business because you think it's about products or profits or results. And it's about all those things. But fundamentally, business, like everything else, is about people and how people interact. Why do some teams interact better and produce more than other teams? And that's what you're talking about. And it's so true. And you obviously are someone who deeply believes in the power of everyone's potential. And you also deeply believe that a leader not only finds and uses all of their own potential, but unlocks the potential in others. I, I agree hundred percent. And it's the people that can, can figure it out quicker and more efficiently are the, are, are the winners in this day and age. Well, Shane, thank you so much for talking with me today. I, I could not think of a better conversation 
to illustrate uh, by example, a leader by example. Uh, you have been a leader on the basketball court, a leader after the basketball court, a leader in uh, helping young people achieve their potential. So thank you so very much for being an extraordinary and inspiring example to all of us. Well, thank you, Carly. I look forward to uh, reading the first copy of Find Your Way. That's all for now. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can visit CarlyFiorina.com or iTunes for more episodes. And make sure you subscribe to By Example so you never miss an episode. To receive updates and exclusive offers, text By Example to 345-345. And while you're at it, you can send us feedback on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Carly Fiorina or by email at byexample at carlyfiorina.com. As always, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Carly Fiorina. And this is By Example.